You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, hey, episode 90 with Diane Barth. So Diane is actually one of those people, very excited, eating disorder and psychoanalytic people who I actually think she's doing less and less eating disorders these days. But either way, she's one of those people. I've read her stuff for years. Diane has been publishing in professional journals and popular magazines, things like that forever. And she has a blog on psychology today. She has a blog on Substack. We can link to all of her work. She's really, really incredible and has a lot of stuff about just general therapy out there. She's also in private practice as a therapist and supervisor, teacher, et cetera. Today's topic is about learning to trust yourself. So a lot of times in eating disorder recovery or really somebody just trying to learn themselves a little bit better in therapy, learning to heal their relationship with food is about getting a sense of what is going on in my body, in my inner experience, with my thoughts, with my emotions. And for a lot of people, they're not sure. And for some people, if they are sure, they're not really sure if they can trust it. And making decisions is really difficult. How do I adult that way? And so this is a really important conversation, especially in light of the topics that we talk about here, that learning to trust yourself learning how to differentiate between the parts of yourself or your ambivalences, and also thinking about how a lot of this might impact your relationships. And I think what's really interesting about this topic is that we often talk about this within the context of intuitive eating, not even therapy-related in terms of hungerfulness and satisfaction. So what am I craving? Which is just another version of how do I get to know my inner experience? And once I get to know it, do I trust it? So perhaps there's the literal level, there's metaphoric level, which you obviously know I'm obsessed with. And, you know, just really learning to trust your own inner experience, make your own decisions, become more adult. Uh, So before I continue rambling on this for ages, I'm just going to let Diane do that because this is a really incredible conversation. I'm very excited to share it. Let's jump right in. Thank you for joining us, Diane. I'm very excited to do this. You know, I'm all about the analytic stuff. So I'm very excited to talk about, you know, trusting ourselves, intuition, and how we can understand it on a deeper level. You know, it's so interesting because I think with anybody that I work with, especially somebody who is struggling with an eating disorder, what ends up being either a direct goal or like an indirect goal of therapy is learning to A, identify what's going on internally for someone. And B, how do I then trust that inner experience? Yeah, I mean, it sort of happens pretty pervasively with everyone, but for sure, for sure, with people with eating disorders. So I guess, you know, even just to start off, like, how did it come to be that people don't 
trust themselves or, or know what's going on inside. Well, okay. So there are a lot of different reasons that people don't trust themselves or don't know what's going on inside. So first of all, I want to go back to, you have talked in other episodes about eating disorders and disordered eating. For me, I like the concept of disordered eating. I actually don't even like that concept, but I like the idea. <laughs> it's that, my favorite that thing, actually. Is, <laughs> okay. What we're talking about is the idea that there is something that is not working about the way somebody eats, about the way somebody feeds themselves. And, oh, and you know, statistically, we know that that's true for most of the world these days, and certainly most of the Western world. The idea that, so if we start with that, one of the things is we start out life with somebody else deciding what we should eat and how much we should eat and when we should eat. And even these days with parents working really hard to help their kids be able to follow their own eating desires, the parents are still making choices. The parents are still deciding when the kid eats. The parents are still often deciding what the kid eats and how much the kid eats. No way can we come out of that experience without some sense of confusion about what we know about our own bodies. And this is not about parents being bad parents. This is about it's just part of the developmental process that we don't learn right away to be able to uh, know what we want to eat or when we want to eat. And I use my poor son for, for an example often, but one of the things for him was that it took me a long time to figure out he didn't know when he was hungry. So even though I was an eating disorder specialist, I was trying to make sure that he understood his own body and understood about eating, he often didn't know when he was hungry. And we could tell because he would get really irritable. And so we started making the connection. You're really irritable. That probably means you're hungry. As he got older, he was able to say that to himself. But it was not like he knew on some sort of physiological level, oh, yes, this means I'm hungry. So another piece of the difficulty with trusting yourself, it just in terms of eating, but it spreads out to all other kinds of things in our lives, but is that we don't, the signals are not always clear. Even, mm -hmm. even with parents who are not trying to give inappropriate or difficult or non-listening messages, the signals just aren't always clear. And so part of the work in therapy is learning to listen to your own signals, sort out those signals, because uh, another thing is that we get lots of different signals. We get signals that we're yeah. physically hungry. We get signals that we're anxiously hungry. We get signals that we're angrily hungry, right? And those signals aren't always clear. So it makes sense to me that it's hard to trust your own internal messages. It's so interesting that you use your poor son as a guinea pig, but the idea that <laughs> he didn't know because, because for so many people, they sort of come at this as we are original intuitive eaters and we just sort of went through time and the system and whatever it was. And now we're not intuitive eaters anymore, right. but originally we knew and I guess it's sort of ambiguous and maybe individual because you're right. As a young kid, they sort of need the adult to let them know what some of their cues yeah. mean. Some of them are inherent, but like think about any sort of parenting, whether it's food related or not, it's okay. Let's yeah. translate. This is a thing that you should do. This is a thing you shouldn't do because we live in a society and, 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 you know, we have to learn what they mean. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So, so I think, you know, we have this, exactly what you said, we have this tendency to say, oh, people have troubles trusting themselves because their parents did this wrong or that wrong. But having been a parent and having helped parents and having, and watching my children my, be grand, being parents, me being grandparents, it's so clear that it's so unclear. Yes. <laughs> it's so difficult it's to, 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 to follow the, you know, to find a path that perfectly good, perfectly well-balanced path. Yeah. So, you know, without attributing blame. <laughs> I think it's useful to start with just that, you know, for a number of different reasons, as you say, without attributing blame, many of us don't know how to sort out our own cues. And so just to add another piece, which is, a, again, generalizes to all kinds of things outside of eating issues, but our bodies and our minds and our psyches and our emotions are sending us several different messages almost at any one time. And so we're choosing which ones we're listening to. Yeah. I also wonder if we can differentiate a little bit of the difference between some people's struggles, because there are some people that really don't know what's going on internally. And so, you know, sort of like it stops, it stops over there. Some people might actually know, and they might know that they're getting messages from all different places, but then they're not really trust themselves. And then there's also so much more nuance in there. There's all different issues that can arise. So can you help us tease out like what are the different issues that can arise, how people well, can have difficulty here? Yeah, there. I mean, you're absolutely right. And the difficulty is that it's actually pretty complicated. So we hopefully learn over a lifetime to have some trust in our own gut feelings and our own instincts. But we also hopefully learn that our gut instincts aren't always right. So one of the struggles is, and I hear this in, with clients with all sorts of different issues, one of the struggles is being able to say, so my brain says this, and my feelings say this, and actually I have two different sets of feelings about this. How do I figure out what one of those feelings is the quote-unquote right feeling or what one of those thoughts is the quote-unquote right feeling and we don't in our culture we really don't learn a whole lot about how to sort through conflict internal conflict mm -hmm. how when we have you know we all have different parts of, of ourselves and the different parts can be in disagreement with each other they can be in conflict with each other how do we sort through that kind of internal conflict we live in a culture that's not so great at, at sorting through conflicts between people either. So it makes sense that we don't have good tools for sorting through the internal conflicts. So I think that that's one of the issues. I think for me, that's like key is that we, there's often internal conflict. We have different voices. We have different thoughts and feelings that don't all neatly mesh together into one message. And we don't know how to sort through and find one that feels right. There's an old theory about there's a, a whole set of feelings that we consider the not me. So that's, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not feeling that way. It's like, I'm not angry, even though you're storming around the room, because that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you do? By the way, you, you seem to be giving every appearance of being angry. Where's that feeling? Where's that connection to that feeling? And what do you do with it? So to me, one of the most important things in the process of trying to sort through this issue of how do you trust yourself is to start to think about, 
can I talk about the different parts of myself? Can I talk about the different, can I think about and talk about, I'm on the one hand, I'm feeling this, on the other hand, I'm feeling this, and on the third hand, I'm feeling this. Can you let all of those exist and have a conversation with yourself, often with the help of somebody else, to see where that conversation leads? Because often once you've let everybody inside you have a voice, <laughs> you start to get to some resolution. The problem of not being able to trust yourself is often because you've left parts out. You've silenced parts of yourself. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because so many people these days, you know, seek advice. So they talk to their friends, they talk to their mentors. And this is my favorite one. They ask their therapist, what should I do as if we're going to say, but just sort of I hate to say this, but I will sometimes say, because I, I'm interrupting you because I, but one of the things is sometimes when you get advice, and you say, oh, I'm not going to do that. That's great because mm. you've gotten the chance to hear a voice and disagree with it. And you're closer to figuring out what your voice wants yeah. to say. Well, I, I mean, I don't, there's nothing wrong with seeking advice. I think that it's a wonderful thing, especially if there's a big decision and you have to think things through. It's not always possible to do it in your head and, and it, nor should it be right. a, an ideal goal. Uh, but what I find interesting is that a lot of people seek advice almost exclusively, which to me seems... I don't want to put the term pathological on it, but there's something there that feels like a crutch. I can't think of this myself. I need to ask somebody. Or even if I have an idea, I need someone's stamp of approval in order to go ahead and do something. And that ultimately the goal is for somebody to be able to, at the very least, trust themselves enough that they wouldn't have to rely on somebody else's piece of advice. Well, nice. If you seek it, fine. Great but not have to rely on it entirely and really be able to stand their own ground. I think that that is such an important point. And I think it's another one of these really nuanced points because I think we are relational creatures and therefore we do need often an interaction with somebody else to know what we feel, which is part of why, why I interrupted you a minute ago, because I will always say to somebody, I'm going to tell you what I think, and I want to hear what you think about what I think, because mm -hmm. what I think is not the right answer. It is an answer, and your reaction will help us know what you're thinking. So um, <laughs> that was a complicated way to say, but I think we often do need other people to help us sort out what we're thinking. What you're talking about is somebody who abdicates, basically, who never takes a chance on making a decision for themselves. And one of the difficulties there is that often the reason somebody won't make a decision for themselves is because they've got an idea that there is a right answer. There's always yes. a right answer. And they're afraid to be wrong. And so one of the things that we as therapists often have to work with people on is the idea that it's not so bad to be wrong. It's part of the process of building a sense of your own awareness of your own thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And by the way, wrong is not ever really wrong. It may, it may turn out to be not what you really wanted. It may turn out to be not what somebody else wanted. It may take you in a direction that you didn't want to go in. But it's not that you've done something, most of the time, it's not you've done something, you know, terrible by making a decision that's quote unquote wrong. I'll give you a disordered eating uh, example, but <laughs> I hear from so many people in the early days of dealing with their 
eating issues that they go out to dinner with friends and they can't decide what they want to order. And whatever they order is not what everybody else ordered or is they don't want to just copy everybody else. And, but then they're unhappy with what they got. And part of that has to do with not being able to sort through what appeals to them, but also not being able to allow themselves to interact with the decisions of other people to say, oh, actually, that sounds better than what I was thinking about. I think I'll get that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, we're sort of dancing around this. Perhaps there's more of a connection. We're talking about interpersonal trust in a way. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm wondering if there is a connection when somebody doesn't have enough trust of themselves. Is that how you say it? Whatever. In themselves, if yeah. that sort of <laughs> if that sort of translates or affects their relationships. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think it goes both ways. Sorry, I think we can't really decide, or we can't really know which comes first. You know, we have to trust someone else to be able to give us feedback that helps us know something about ourselves that that comes from early developmental issues of, you know, we're now calling mirroring that we need somebody else to reflect when we're very little, we need somebody else to say, Oh, sweetie, you're upset because you need your diaper changed or, you know, Oh, you're sad because I'm going away or, but we need somebody else to spell it out, which then helps us figure out what we're feeling. And then in normal development, we take over that job, but not always. I had a an instructor years and years and years ago who gave the story of, of herself when she was a teenager. She had surgery and the after the surgery, a nurse came in and asked her if she needed a painkiller. Was she in pain? And she said no. And her mother looked at her and said, sweetie, you're in pain. You need a painkiller. Really? <laughs> and, and she did. And she felt like it was her mother doing something for her that she couldn't do for herself because she couldn't at that moment really make an assessment of her own self. Now, there are times that parents say, oh, sweetie, this is what's going on when it's not accurate. And that then makes it hard to, you know, then you're sort of left with, do I take what my parents are saying and believe that about myself? Or do I reject that? And then how do I figure out what I'm actually feeling? Again, I do not want to put this as blaming parents. I just think that it's an example of how we throughout life are negotiating, being able to make decisions based on our knowledge of ourselves and being able to trust others. I think the two go hand in hand. I think that they there's an interaction that's always going on. Meaning like if somebody is kind of skeptical of themselves, chances are they're skeptical of others or is that too simplistic? I'm not sure that that's always true. It sounds, it sounds like it may be true, but I just, as you said that I was thinking, well, but sometimes people are too trusting of others. And then that leads to self-doubt because they always assume the other person knows what they're feeling, which is, cannot be true all the time. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, It's like you said about somebody who's always asking for advice. Is that because you don't trust yourself, but you trust other people too much? Mm -hmm. I think I can't make a generalization there. (laughs) So let's just be more fair in saying individually it's different, but it for sure has to impact relationships. If someone has a hard time trusting themselves, it's going to show up in some way, shape or form in their relationships. Yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah. 
Um, of course this is sort of a riff off of the generalization. So let me know if this is not answerable, but <laughs> does it affect the types of people that we choose to be in connection with? Oh, I would think so. I mean, so we can probably make generalizations. I'm really bad about making a categorizing. So I'm going to do this in a way that I'm going to try to answer that question because I think it's a good question. And I think it actually is important to recognize that, yes, if I'm a person who doesn't trust myself at all, I may always be drawn to people who are very self-assured and seem mm -hmm. to know exactly what they're thinking and feeling. But I may, even though that's who I'm drawn to, I may also reject them at a certain point mm -hmm. because I get irritated with the very thing that I was drawn to because on some level, I really want someone to help me be more in touch with myself. Or maybe I actually am more in touch with myself than I'm acknowledging and I'm not, this other person isn't recognizing that. Yeah. Very interesting. And then it just gets more complicated as time goes on. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Circling back. I mean, we could obviously stick in the relationship piece sprinkled here and there, but circling back to this idea of, okay, so there's a problem. I don't necessarily know what's going on internally. If I do, maybe I don't trust it. Maybe I don't know how to go about trusting it. If I'm in that situation, how do I even begin to change? Yeah. Okay. I agree. Great question. I, I <laughs> You're like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that that's why people go to therapy because the idea mm -hmm. of therapy is that this is a person you can trust to not try to influence you, to let you think out, talk out, explore different aspects of yourself. And the change happens as you get to know, I, I believe change happens as you get to know all the different parts of yourself. As you start to feel more comfortable with sometimes feeling shy and sometimes not feeling shy, sometimes feeling smart and sometimes not feeling smart, and sometimes feeling angry and sometimes feeling victimized. And, you know, I'm just naming some opposites that come to my mind quickly, but mm -hmm. the goal is to be able to get to know all these different parts of yourself. And therapists are trained. We don't always do it and we're not always good. At, you know, we're not always able to do it as well as we like to be, but we're trained to try to help a person to remain neutral as somebody tries to get in touch with the different parts of themselves. That's it. I think friends can do that also, and family members can do that. But it has to be somebody who you feel comfortable sharing different parts of yourself. And often they'll then share different parts of themselves. And so there can be a mutual process of exploring different parts and becoming more comfortable with different parts. So you're saying that, I mean, we always get confronted with difficult situations. So if we can break down any one of these, difficult situations. Well, not one, obviously this happens over a period of time, yeah. but if we can begin to break it down, identify perhaps what our thought process is and what upset us about it or what excited us about it or, or et cetera, anything, then we can sort of start organizing and then begin to talk them out and further organize our inner experience over time. Maybe practice is really all it takes. Yeah. I would say practice and process. 
that, you know, as we organize, we're also processing things. They don't stay the same. We get to know different ways of being. Uh, we learn alternative ways of addressing something. But yeah, yeah, it's letting yourself get to know different parts, different experiences, different ways of thinking, different feelings, and being able to talk about them and feel them and, and yeah, mm-hmm. practice them. Yeah. So, I mean, th- that's great advice. I think, especially if somebody is overwhelmed with the idea of how do I begin to trust myself and it's hard for them to make decisions and all that stuff. What about for the person who, if you ask them what's going on, they actually have no idea. So it's mm-hmm. not like they don't trust their intuition or their gut. It's just like, I don't know, what does it say? Is it even there? Which is a completely different ballpark. What would you say to somebody like that? Well, okay. So I, I don't know that it's a completely different ballpark, actually. It's there's okay. a connection, which is, again, I, for years, one of the things that I say to people when they're telling me that they're, you know, they say they're feeling sad or they say they're feeling angry. I say, how do you know? Can you explain it to me? Can you tell me where you're feeling it in your body? Mm-hmm. And lots of people cannot say where they're feeling something in their body. Mm-hmm. And when I first started doing this, I used to think, well, that meant that they were just out of touch. But what I have learned is that not everybody processes their feelings in their body. And that really, um, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have so many examples of people who, after years of therapy, after doing really, really wonderfully well, still don't necessarily feel things, you know, like if you ask me where I feel sad, I'll point to my chest immediately, but they don't feel it in their chest. They don't feel it in their body, but they can tell you some of the ways they know they're sad. Hmm. So interesting. And yeah. And we, we tend to think that if you're really in touch with yourself, you know, where in your body you're feeling something or you feel it in some particular way. So to go back to your question, though, I think that not knowing is another way of, of saying that you don't know how to process it. It's You don't know how to mm-hmm. find your particular experiences that let you know that this is what you're feeling or thinking or what's going on for you. And so going back to your word, I mean, I, I think you're 100% right. Some of this is about practice. If you start you know, trying to say, well, this is what's going on, or I don't know what's going on. I I have clients who come back to me after, you know, a break and say, you know, one of the things that was most helpful was you used to say, okay, you don't know. So guess, if you were going to (laughs) guess, what would you say? And of course, if they're guessing, it's coming from them. So it's going to be somehow connected to something, right? Sure. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So if you practice guessing, Eventually, the guessing becomes more, oh, I think this is what I'm feeling, or I think this is what's going on. I don't know. I like the concept of neurons. I don't really know that they mean anything, but (laughs) I like the concept (laughs) of neuron pads. To me, it's like- Well, hold on a second. What do you mean by it might not mean anything? (laughs) I have friends who are neurologists who every time I talk to them about what we talk about in in psychodynamic theory, it's, you know, neuron paths neuron firing they say there's no such thing so (laughs) that's hilarious they're like that's like a different form of neurology that doesn't exist besides for for therapists (laughs) exactly so 
so every time I talk about it, I have to, I, I've got them sort of in my head saying to me, uh, but metaphorically, I like the idea that we, when we're, so if it's with the concept of practice, right, when we try to talk about something, we're, when we guess what it is that's going on for us, we, there's no right or wrong here. It's a process of building neuron paths or whatever those are, right? that there's some, whatever we want to call it, some process going on in our psyche and our bodies and our sense of self that's gradually finding ways to talk about what we're experiencing. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, different iterations of this issue that has come up over the years. And I think that there's obviously the person who doesn't really know what's going on. And that could be physically. I don't know when I'm hungry or when I'm full. I don't know what I'm in the mood for, or I really have no idea what my thoughts or feelings are. Maybe I'll know like a couple of thoughts, but definitely not feelings. And that, you know, very often a lot of clinicians talk about mindfulness and bringing Mm -hmm. your attention to your body, which, you know, even just the word is a turnoff to some people, whatever. That's another conversation. But I think what I have found, so this is anecdotal, but what's a wonderful way of thinking about it and instead of pushing it and saying, well, let's try to figure this out, try to figure this out is what makes it hard to figure out? And so is there something uncomfortable about it? Is there something else going on which could potentially broaden the question or the conversation to something you know, if someone doesn't want to guess or they don't want to pinpoint the question, and it also can bring us to a place we didn't even know existed. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So psychoanalytically, psychodynamically, that's, that's called, um, uh, analyzing the defense, right? So the defense is to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to do that. I don't like the idea of meditating. So, so then to try to explore what's stopping you or what's getting in the way, that's the thing that's stopping the process. And you're right. I mean, I, my experience too, it, you can open that up. All sorts of stuff gets opened up. Yeah. Now we're giving away all our secrets. So people are like, oh, that's <laughs> what you do. That's what... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not exactly I, rocket science. I don't think there should be secrets, actually. I think that, that, that that's part of the processing process. <laughs> Good English here. But yeah, <laughs> the, I mean, the more you know about the way you think and the no, more you... Owen Rennick used to talk yeah. about the idea of uh, share for uh, that an analyst should share their thoughts mm-hmm. about how they're thinking about someone. So that to sort of share... Um, the process of mindfulness, but it's a process of being thoughtful about your own thoughts. And so I think sharing quote unquote secrets is, is really sharing the way our minds work. Of course. Yeah. Models, you know, oh, well then that's okay. I can do that. Right. Yeah. So the asking a question and then something like I ask because, and then I'll give an explanation of Mm -hmm. why I'm asking which you're right, could be so powerful, especially when people start learning to do it for themselves, to ask themselves different types of questions. It is very helpful. But also even along the same lines of what we're talking about, this person who has a very hard time trusting themselves, if they're sort of relying on their therapist to sort of have the answers or the secrets or whatever it is, you know, that's not going to be entirely helpful. And so... right you know, sharing the behind the scenes is 
yes. is letting them in on, on this. We're not like, we don't have the answers. Right. Right. So yep. um, no plug for therapy here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or a plug for the process of therapy. <laughs> True. Well, can I ask you what you mean by that? I mean, we're obviously therapists, so we very much believe in the process of therapy. Um, and you had mentioned that this is something you could do with a friend. Is therapy or could therapy be perceived as like a glorified friend? And can you do it with friends from your opinion? So, okay. So how about, <laughs> there's not a yes or no answer here, but um, okay. <laughs> if we think that much of our learning is relational. Much of our learning about ourselves is relational. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, lots has been written about, can the therapeutic relationship be a friendship? And I just wrote a paper about that last year. It's the struggle is if it's truly a friendship, then there are certain things that define a friendship that are sort of antithetical to the therapeutic process. One of them being kind of a neutrality. Another one being that the, it's really focused on the client, not on both people. Mm -hmm. But that is not to say that strong feelings don't develop in the therapeutic relationship between both people. We have trouble talking about that sometimes, and clients have trouble talking about it sometimes. But I think it's important as one of the things for exploration to be able to talk about that those feelings are often part of the process of the work in the same way that a very good friend can sometimes help you process things that are difficult and that are important, they're not going to be a therapist because they're not going to be neutral and they're not going to just focus on you. That's antithetical to the definition of friendship. But the, the process can still happen. I had personal experience of this. I recently had lost my younger brother and it was very, very hard. And friends who had gone through some losses themselves or had not gone through some losses themselves, but were able to, you know, join me in the process of processing those feelings were very, very important. And so I think that it's not, the goal of therapy is actually to make the therapist not necessary anymore, but to be able to do some of the things that you do with a therapist with friends in a way that's mutual, mm -hmm. that's not the one-sided nature of therapy. But I think it only works because there is also a very strong relationship often between the therapist and the client. Yeah. Well, I guess it's also safe to say that all relationships can have a function depending on yes. what the person needs. And obviously a person always needs friends and that it's really complicated to sort of line things up in a friendship as it would sort of naturally be with a therapist. Yes. Yes. I also just wanted to clarify, because there are people who say, I don't need a therapist. I have my friends mm -hmm. to which I say, poor friends. Right. Exactly. And, and that, exactly. and that it's not necessarily interchangeable, but of course, relationships are follow themes. Yes. And so they're going to overlap. 
That's right. And that's an excellent point also, that, that one of the things is in therapy, the therapist's job is to start to point out some of those themes. You don't want mm-hmm. your friends pointing out the themes, right? That, that was sort of also. Uh, yeah, no, no, don't point that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we want to stay friends. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Yes. But Ed, I do want to say it has been a pleasure for me. Thank you, Raquel. It's been, it's been really fun. So yeah, you know, I'm going to interrupt um, you one more time. Actually, um, people, I, I <laughs> I've been reading your stuff for years. So this is really fun <laughs> for me to talk to you face to face. Oh, that's very nice. That's very nice. Well, I have enjoyed listening to your podcast, so <laughs> it's mutual. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Where can we find you? <laughs> <laughs> so the two easiest places are, I have a blog on Psychology Today, which is called Off the Couch. And I have a new blog on Substack, which is called Aging Without a Map. Nice. Well, can you give us a little find- snippet of that? That sounds so interesting. What's it about? Well, it's about moving into one's later years, which what the French call the troisième age, the, the third age. <laughs> yeah, so moving into your 60s and then beyond, but even before that, sort of preparing to move into your 60s and how we're doing it so differently from the way our parents did it and how mm-hmm. we don't really know what that means from do we let ourselves go gray to (laughs) what sports can we still do to really more serious things like how to deal with loss and loss of our own functions, loss of loved ones, um, because that happens more and more often as we get older. So it's really me talking about my process and then also sort of exploring what other people have written about it, what other people are saying about it. That's basically it. Oh, I love that. And what's the other one that you said off the couch? What is that one about? Yeah, that's psychology today. That's really exploring all sorts of, I've been writing that one for 11 years now, I think, or maybe more than that. Um, And so it's been exploring all sorts of different psychological issues and concepts and ranging from self-esteem to how do you deal with parents who have completely different political points of view from you. Oh, that's a sticky one. (laughs) to what happens when you are actually in love with a narcissist and, and can you have a relationship with a narcissist? Oh, that's it also sort a good of ranges one. all over the place. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So we'll link to those in the show notes uh, if anyone wants to check them okay. out. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Well, right. thank you again. Well, thank you. This has really been fun. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.